The water park and the bonneted bat can both be saved? How Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville legacy defines us here, and why Cubans ended up fighting for Russia. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Padgett. In the next hour, we'll look at the clash between a proposed water park at Zoo Miami and conservationists, including Miami's most popular wildlife booster, who want to protect the rare pine rocklands there. We'll also look at the parrothead culture that tropical rock music legend Jimmy Buffett left in Key West and beyond, and we'll examine Cuba's sudden and questioned claim that it's broken up a smuggling ring sending Cubans to fight for Russia in Ukraine. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. You've probably never heard of the bonneted bat. Neither had I until this week. But it's the rarest and largest bat in North America. And here in Miami, it's at the center of a high-stakes clash between developers and environmentalists. The issue? Whether the Miami Wilds water theme park should be built near the protected Pine Rocklands at Zoo Miami in South Dade. It's a preserve the bat and other endangered species call home. This is one of the thorniest ecology versus economy disputes South Florida has seen in a long time. The Miami Wilds developers insist the 67-acre water park will not harm the Pine Rocklands or its flora and fauna, and that it will be a $3 million a year boon to Zoo Miami. But conservationists, including Zoo Miami spokesman Ron McGill, argue it's too much of a risk since Pine Rocklands forest land has all but vanished. After a heated meeting this week, the Miami-Dade County Commission decided to postpone a vote on the almost $100 million water park until September 19th. Which side should prevail? Is there a way both sides can prevail? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio is WLRN's environmental editor, Jenny Stiletovich who's been following this debate. With us here also is architect Bernard Sikovich. He's a manager of the Miami Wilds Water Park Development. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Tim. Jenny, I think we have to start here with why environmentalists oppose this water park. First, remind us exactly what a Pine Rocklands habitat is and, and what is it about the Pine Rocklands at the Zoo Miami site that they say warrant protection from a project like this? So a pine rockland forest is a forest that's only found in South Florida, the Bahamas, parts of Cuba. It has a limestone floor, Mm -hmm. um, which makes it really uh, special and unique. It has an airy canopy of just those old dade pines. Those are the pines that grow in this forest. And so as it has shrunk over the years, it's it's become an oasis for species that can't live anyplace else. And many of us, like me, who live in South Dade, probably walk by, bike by little tracks of pine rocklands all the time and may not even notice it. Right. I mean, the real pine rockland, you will see that that limestone base. It's rocky. There'll be Mm -hmm. pits with the key deer down in the Keys love the Pineland down there because they're little watering holes. That's one of the ways they survive. Mm -hmm. So it was also high ground. It was the Pine Ridge that that Mm -hmm. wrapped its way along the coast and largely got developed over the years. And Um, and less than 3% of of, of, uh, uh, Pine Rocklands 
that originally existed on this planet now Right. Yeah. And this this track, the Richmond Pine Rockland, was once an old Navy blimp base. Mm-hmm. Um, it was over 2,000 acres. Uh, after the war, when the blimp base was decommissioned, there was damage from a hurricane. The Navy started hand- giving out parcels, donating right. it to University of Miami got some, Miami-Dade County got some, the Coast Guard got some. It was all divvied up. Um, but it largely went undeveloped, except for the zoo. Part of it turned was turned into Larry and Penny Thompson Park, right. um, the Department of Defense, a, a satellite field. But it was wide open, and it became this real oasis for some of these species that right. now... You know, like the bonneted bat, and like I think the you, you've, you've, bat, you've the tiger mentioned beetle. about seventeen other uh, endangered species. So, why do the environmentalists believe so ardently that the Miami Wilds water park would spell doom for the pine rocklands there, as as well as for the endangered species like the bonneted bat? So, what they're really concerned about is the bonneted bat. This is North America's okay. largest bat found down here. Um, it was, you know. When, when they started looking more closely at this land, and I will say, I said before, it was largely undeveloped for years until the a Walmart project a few years ago got approved on land that UM used to own. That drew a lot of attention and scrutiny to this land. A lot of surveys were done. They were looking at plants and animals, and they discovered this bonneted bat population. Um, they okay. are big bats. They need lots of room to fly and forage. They consume huge amounts of insects, and so they need this big, dark open area to forage and that parking lot is now um, the feeds the largest colony known colony of bats of bonneted bats um, that there are and in so the world I, and so I also have to just quickly ask why does zoo Miami's most recognizable personality Ron McGill so strongly oppose it himself, as he wrote in a recent op-ed and, a, and in a letter to the Miami-Dade Commission. Right. So I talked to him, and, and he said he regrets not objecting to the Walmart project, that he was afraid that that project was going to do damage to species. Um, he said he didn't speak up, but this time around with Miami Wilds. The, the, remind us, the Walmart project being? It is on Pine Rockland. It's mm-hmm. a, a it's called Coral Reef Commons. Mm-hmm. It's apartments. Um, it's a strip mall, basically. Across, There's across from... It's it's right. It's right next door to to the zoo, zoo on Miami. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. OK. And so he he, he says he, and he said this regrets time not not having. Reg- right. Right. Regrets not speaking up. Um, and this time he just felt like he had to say something because he felt like this. The, another development was going to harm these species even more. Right. Despite the fact that his employer, Zoo Miami, is in favor of, of this. The project. Parks Department. Right. 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 Now, Bernard. Your developer group, Miami Wilds, argues this water park can, in fact, be built and operated without harming the Pine Rockland site. Take us through the main claims the environmentalists make that you feel are exaggerated or, or, or just plain wrong. Well, Tim, thanks, thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, first of all, myself and my partners consider ourselves environmentalists. Uh, we're usually on the advocacy side of these types of arguments. But I really appreciate today the opportunity to talk about the science because I think that this conversation has gone in the wrong direction and frankly is full of misinformation. So let me take you through what we perceive to be the issues. I've agreed actually with everything Jenny said except for one thing. So we we agree the Pine Rockland itself is not an issue because we're not anywhere near the Pine Rockland. The project site is in the parking lot 
and one-third of the parking lot will be water park. The other two-thirds will remain parking lot because the zoo needs the parking and it's already disturbed and there really is no issue. So I agree completely with this issue being boiled down to the Florida bonneted bat. Uh-huh. And this is, this is the place that we feel that our message has not been heard. Um, everything I'm going to say is public documents we've submitted and transmitted to Dade County. Uh, we know that the mayor, the Parks Department, the county is very concerned about environmental issues, and so are we, frankly. So let me lay out one thing that has not gotten any public awareness. Okay. Um, part of our lease agreement required that we do a, a, an acoustical bonneted bat survey. This was submitted to the county uh, basically at the end of December 2022. It's the most recent survey. Mm-hmm. But there have been three surveys. And, but but and, what, what, that survey, what, what, what is the main conclusion then? Uh, okay, that so we, let, that we let me take, take you that. through that, but I need to explain uh-huh. the, the bottom line because this is really an environmental conversation. I uh-huh. want to make sure that, that everyone understands the credibility of this particular survey. Uh-huh. This was done by Johnson Engineering. They've done more acoustical bat surveys than anyone in Florida. They have offices all over the place. People can check them out. They do everything according to the requirements of fish and wildlife, and they use only the best equipment. So what has come out of this, I can give you the bottom line. The Mm -hmm. punchline is the bonneted bats do not forage here. Mm -hmm. Bonneted bats have three uh, sounds that they make. They make the sound that they make during flight which is basically, if you live here like I do and you do, you hear the parakeets yapping all the time. Mm -hmm. We don't hear the bats, but they're yapping all the time. Mm -hmm. So those are bat calls. There's another type of call which is social, and -hmm. there's a third type of call which is foraging, basically feeding. Mm -hmm. So the analysis of bonneted bat calls needs to identify all three. Mm -hmm. In 2012 or 14, the county did its own survey and they realized that out of all the bat calls in this area, 3% were bonneted bats. They did not have the equipment to identify the different calls. Okay. The, no. But let me just finish, sure. if you don't mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, the, the, the controversy has really been stirred up by Bat Conservation International. And they published their information without giving us or the county, frankly, any data or backup. They okay. allege that 40% of the bat calls are bonneted bat. This survey that was done by the professional consulting group justifies that it's 3% of the bonneted bats. Okay. Uh, now, we, we do have a caller on the line uh, from calling from Perrine, actually, in South Dade. But before I get to that call real quick, Jenny, I just wanted to ask you, then, given what uh, Bernard has laid out for us here, is this an argument that you think uh, environmentalists, particularly the environmentalists involved in this dispute, would agree with? No. I mean, I think that they would, I, first of all, the Johnson survey, I mean, there are a lot of questions that, that I have about when the survey was done, um, this, the circumstances of the survey, BATS Conservation International is an organization of scientists that they're not the only ones who have done surveys, Zoo Miami, uh, the BAT there, Frank Ridgely, they put up BAT boxes, they've studied them. And the bottom line, too, is that the National Park Service, which has to do an environmental impact study to determine damage, hasn't done that yet. So I think 
part of what you're getting at would be answered by the National Park Service of whether or not there's going to be damage to habitat. This this land is going to be part of their critical habitat when they do that final designation. So so I guess I would want to know um, what the National Park Service has to say about a private engineering company that's hired to do a survey. Okay, Bernard, just real briefly, because I do have to take a call, if you could just respond to that. Sure. First mm -hmm. of all, this is not a private engineering company that works for developers. They work for government, they work for counties, and they're a recognized expert. Okay. We were required to hire them by the lease. Okay. And we paid for them, but they're an independent consulting group. Okay, let me go to our caller here, Remy from Perrine. Uh, he says it's better to let Zoo Miami develop the lot than risk other development. Remy, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Explain what you're uh, getting at there, please. Uh, thank you. Thank you for taking the call. Uh, okay, the case of Peacock Park, uh, valuable um, uh, bayfront land that was supposed to be an expansion for Peacock, Peacock Park years ago in Coconut Grove got turned into a condo development. Even the case of Bicentennial Park, which now became Museum Park, at least we ended up doing something that benefited all the community rather than uh, just allowing developers to get in there when everybody has their back turned. The mm -hmm. reality is the politics in this county are such that the developers get away with murder. Better to get something that more or less coincides with Zoo of Miami than to just have more condos and okay. more Target and more Walmart. All right, thanks Thank very you. thanks very much, Remy and and Bernard. I, I should uh, let, let you point out your your argument would be t also that the Miami Wilds has already made some gestures to alleviate some of the environmentalist concerns, such as agreeing to move the location of a hotel that was part of the water park proposal, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tim, the this started as, as something requested by the county in 2006. The voters of the county by 60% voted in favor of an entertainment area at the zoo. Mm -hmm. This this project was not invented by us. We're responding to the county. Okay. It's an economic development project that's gonna help the bleeding of the taxpayer money at the zoo, which is to the tune of $20 million a year in losses. Right. So we think we're actually and, and I want to address one more thing. Our opinion is not only are we not doing harm, we are doing good. We're going to okay. be helping the zoo get more attendance, and we're going to be taking care of the Pine Rockland, which right. has not been taken care of. And I do want to get to that. But what you're saying actually then segues, Jenny, <clears throat> to what I wanted to ask you about now, which is if we could remind folks how we got to where we are in this water park dispute. How did this tract of rock, uh, 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 Pine Rocklands come to be available for a development of this kind in the first place. Br briefly take us through the history of that, if you would. Well, I think Bernard is right. In 2006, there was a voter referendum, and, and, and voters' residents were asked, what do you want to see here? And they agreed mm -hmm. that a water park would be a good thing. However, okay. they said only if it's not built on environmentally sensitive land, and that is the turning point. That's what conservationists, they will say we're not against you know, development. What we are against is building in globally imperiled land like a pine rockland. Okay. Um, and so that 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 sort of set the set the stage for what has turned into nearly two decades and, and, of trying and, to get a water and, park and, built. And, and speaking of these two decades, then and then remind us then why did the water park project, after getting approved right in in 2020, if I'm not mistaken, get held up legally early this year? 
bringing us to where we are now waiting for a Miami-Dade County Commission right. vote. So so as part of that approval, uh, the county needed to have lease restrictions lifted on land that were in, put in place um, by the National Park Service. Mm-hmm. Um, the National Park Service, to, to remove those restrictions, needed to do these environmental impact studies, which I mentioned earlier, that right. would determine, would this project harm wildlife? The A couple of conservation groups who have been following this put in a records request and said, we want to see those studies. Fed said, we didn't we never completed them. They then went to court, asked a judge to declare the lease agreement unlawful because those studies were not done. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the dispute over a proposed water park on protected land at Zoo Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Bernard Siskovich, do, do you feel it's gotten lost on folks then amid all the shouting um, that the federal government itself does not seem to have a problem with this water park being built on this site, that the, they, they agreed to lift the restrictions on this land, as Jenny pointed out? And so why would you say they are OK with it? Well, we've had during the course of this process, I want to emphasize the county has been extremely diligent in making sure that nothing happens at the water park area that would impact either the Pine Rockland or uh, anything related to the Florida bonneted bat. The county is great stewards of their environmental holdings. Uh, We needed to do some lot line adjustments because when the county got the land, the lines were drawn in a way that don't coincide with the disturbed area, meaning the area outside of environmental areas, which is the parking lot. Mm-hmm. So we needed the lines adjusted so that they could readjust uh, the area so that we're limited only to the parking lot, which we are. Okay. So, so they decided, well, we can release the lands because the the parking lot is already disturbed and there are no okay. natural areas there. Okay. We only have 30 seconds left. I want to each ask each of you in just 15 seconds. Between now and September 19th, is there a chance that there could be a compromise of any kind here? Jenny? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, okay. I think... Oh. And Bernard, same question. Any compromise? I think there's been a tremendous amount of compromise. We invite the science to be revealed. We've never had the okay. audience to reveal the data that we have. Well, we'll see then. Bernard Sikovich is an architect with the Miami Wilds Water Park Developer Group. Jenny Stiletovich is WLRN's environment editor. Thanks very much to you both. Appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come, the Margaritaville legacy that Jimmy Buffett left us. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I should have a margarita and a shaker of salt in front of me for this segment, but it's only 1.30 in the afternoon, even though it is 5 o'clock somewhere. As you've no doubt guessed by now, we're going to talk about Jimmy Buffett, the tropical rock music superstar and Key West icon who died from cancer last Friday at age 76. 
Buffett's hits included Cheeseburger in Paradise, Changes in Latitudes, Changes in Attitudes, and of course, it's five o'clock somewhere. But his biggest was the one you're listening to right now, Margaritaville from 1977. The song introduced not only Buffett to the world, but also its setting, Key West, and it ushered in a party-hardy culture of so-called island escapism that's come to define the Keys, if not all of South Florida. The craze for Margaritaville music and merchandise, fueled by an ardent fan base known as the Parrotheads, made Buffett a billionaire. But has his flip-flops credo also fostered a perhaps too laid-back attitude in this particular latitude? What's your take on the legacy of Jimmy Buffett? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me from, where else, Key West, is Dr. Corey Malcolm. He's lead historian at the Florida Keys History Center and knows a lot about Jimmy Buffett's cultural impact. Corey, welcome. I believe we have Corey with us by Zoom, no? Corey? Well, I was going to ask Corey to remind us Well, I was going to ask Corey to first remind us um, or what Key West was in the era, era that I would call BB, before Buffett. And would we have called it Margaritaville back then? Corey, are you with us? Well, I guess not. Well, I think if Corey were here, what he would have pointed out uh, is that Key West back in, let's say, the, the early to mid-70s was not the Key West, obviously, that we know today. Uh, it, was, it had just been sort of turned over by the, 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 the Navy, uh, the naval base there. And frankly, to tell the truth, one of the pillars of the economy was <laughs> marijuana running. And then along comes Jimmy Buffett in, in the mid-late 70s with this song, Margaritaville, and the entire place, the entire culture of the place, really, transforms. Now, of course, Key West had back then, uh, in the early part of, of the century, Hemingway and Sloppy Joe's, for example, the famous bar that was uh, built there in the early part of the 20th century. They'd already given Key West... A, a certain tropical escape aura, but that's, that was nothing compared to what the song and Jimmy Buffett, Margaritaville, brought uh, to, to that aura of, of, of Key West. And I think uh, Key, Key's historians, like uh, uh, Corey Malcolm, who are now still were working to, to get him <laughs> on the line with us here from Key West, I think he'd agree that um, Key West was ripe uh, for the kind of Tiki Hut image overhaul that Buffett brought to the place with, with the song Margaritaville. And a lot of that had to do with the, the affinity that Buffett had, 
who, for Key West. He was, as let's remember, a, a, an Alabama native. Um, and like a lot of people who fall in love with Key West, he was he was coming from someplace else. But he he had such an affinity for Key West and vice versa. Key West, I think, ended up having an affinity for Buffett. And I think then that was why he ended up being so responsible for this for the offbeat cultural renaissance that Key West began to be, be known for in the wake of that song's phenomenon, meaning Margaritaville, not to mention uh, the tourism boom that followed. And I'm just checking now then to see if, if we've been able to get Dr. Malcolm back on the line with us so that I can let him weigh in on this Jimmy Buffett legacy discussion that we'd like to uh, like to have with him. And one of the other important, uh, I think, um, facets of this discussion uh, about Jimmy Buffett and the Key West is, is, is the extent to, to which he was responsible for the rather offbeat cultural renaissance that Key West began to be known for in the wake of, of, of the, the phenomenon of the song Margaritaville, not to mention the tourism boom that followed, as I mentioned. Um, and I think a big question to ask is whether Key West formed this unique sense of self it's so famous for today. Would it have developed that sense of self without the Jimmy Buffett factor? And I am told that we now have Dr. Corey Malcolm back with us from Key West. Uh, Corey, are you there? I am. Uh, <laughs> Thank goodness. Sorry, uh, been, sorry we lost having- you there. Yeah, no, I've been having a conversation with you, but uh, um, it wasn't coming through. So I apologize for that. No idea what went on. Well, Corey, let's let let, let me go first back to what what I was talking about. Let's let, let's first remind ourselves what Key West was in the area that, as I say, I would call BB before Buffett. Would, yeah. would we have called it Margaritaville back then? Oh no, no. Uh, Key West, uh, you know when. Jimmy Buffett got here, what, in late 1971. Key West was uh, was a Navy town. Right. You know, uh, there was a big Navy base here, uh, and uh, um, that was really the big driver of, of the Key West economy and, and uh, um, really set the tone for, for the community in a right. lot of ways. Now, so, but as, uh, as I pointed out, the, 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 there was that era, though, with Hemingway and Sloppy Joes that had given Key West a certain tropical escape aura, though, no, ha- had it not? Yeah, well, to some degree, and certainly in the Depression, um, that was one of the, the uh, big uh, uh, things that the, the federal government tried to do was reinvent Key West as sort of this... Uh, uh, you know, tropical getaway for uh, right. for Americans. So, uh, right. you know, and there to some degree that was uh, successful, but uh, but 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 um, but, but that's but that sort of lays out though the, the 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 fact that Key West was ripe for this kind of tiki hut image overall that brought Buffett ended up bringing to the place with the song Margaritaville, right? Right, right, and there are a number of factors that happened in the early seventies that really. Um, kind of laid the groundwork for somebody like Jimmy Buffett to come in and, and do what he did. And that is, um, you know, the Navy 
did leave very shortly after uh, Buffett arrived. And, and with that, the Key West economy collapsed. Uh, the city fathers sort of said, okay, we need to reinvent ourselves again. And, and uh, they turned their eyes toward tourism as, uh, uh, you know, the next big thing. Right. And uh, so for somebody like Jimmy Buffett to, you know, become popular and, and, you know, write this song, Mark Readerville, that everybody, you know, just assumed meant Key West. Right. Um, it was uh, that really the, the I think everybody was was ready for that. Right. Buff, Buffett, Jimmy Buffett was what Key West was waiting for in, in, in the context yeah. that you've just <laughs> described. And why do you think Buffett had such an affinity for Key West and vice versa? Well, um, you know, that, 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 it's hard to say exactly what it was. He certainly came from a maritime family. You know, he grew up in, in uh, Alabama, coast of Mobile, Alabama. Uh-huh, right. Mar- mm-hmm. Maritime family. Um, had tried his hand at music in Nashville, found that a little uh, off-putting and, and uh, not much to his liking. Uh, made his way to Miami and then through a friend, came to Key West, and I just found it to be magical for, you know, any number of reasons. The people that right. were here, the, 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 the quasi-tropical culture that was here, and, of course, the water. Right. And uh, I think uh, he was just smitten with the place. How responsible was he, then, for the offbeat cultural renaissance that Key West began to be known for in the wake of that song's phenomenon, meeting Margaritaville, not to mention the tourism boom that followed? How responsible yeah. was he? Well, quite a bit, uh, absolutely. And, and uh, uh, you know, there has really been no bigger... Uh, a musician uh, in, in popularity is, is, than Jimmy Buffett, you know, uh, to come out of Key West. And, and uh, you know, he, he took all those things that he loved about this place, enhanced them and, you know, popularized them and put them into the, uh, the public consciousness, right. really, you know, on, right. on a national scale. And we, we, is, it, is it correct then to say that Key West really wouldn't have been able to form the unique sense of self it's so famous for today without that Jimmy Buffett factor? Or, or, or just how important was that? Well, yeah, and I think what he did, you know, and with Margaritaville was somewhat redefine Key West because, um, you know, sort of this, this uh, lazy sort of, uh, you know, hanging out on the beach and, you know, uh, that's how everybody lives their lives. Key West was never that uh, before, mm-hmm. you know, to, to any degree. And uh, um, I think that whole concept of sort of the laid-back Key West, um, really, you can almost uh, pinpoint it to Margaritaville. Right. Um, and, and so the modern concept, and when I say, you know, last 45 years, uh, of of the island, um, I think is is largely attributable to uh, to it, it really one song in a lot of ways. Right. So it's a huge impact. But what, but what what besides that, you know, sitting on my front porch, singing, strumming my six string, that hanging out in the hammock, you know, aspect of Key West life. Right. What other though important facets of the Key West sense of self? Are, are very important that he also maybe helped to foster, besides, again, the, the laid-back aspect. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly that's, that's uh, uh, the big one. But, uh, you know, I mean, just the 
the geography, the the uh, the sort of foreignness of of Key West. I mean, I you know, Key West is different from just right. about any other city in the U.S. And I think that uh, was something that uh, you know uh, uh, Buffett used. Right. That and, that that uh, sense of openness and inclusiveness that the conch yeah. the conch uh, world, let's say, uh, offers to the right. world. He's 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 kind right. of responsible for that as well. No. Well, yeah, and to some degree, of course. You know, I mean, Key West has always been a a, a maritime town, a, a port, and you know, lots of different people coming in and out over you know a, a couple hundred years. Um, so there is sort of that openness naturally, just in being a, a, a maritime port. But yeah, Buffett absolutely uh, worked with that, and and. Uh, uh, well, you know, just help popularize. Well, as you said, as you mentioned before, he he really glorified the water. I mean, so uh, would the Keys in South Florida, for example, have been as conscious about protecting the environment, our coral reef, the Everglades, etc., if not for Buffett's music and movement, as it were, raising that profile? Yeah, well, absolutely. Let me say this: I think uh, you know Buffett's uh, lifestyle, his CDs, actually helped sell a lot of boats in South yeah. Florida too. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I... So, you know, in some ways, I, this one of uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett's, uh, I think, great legacies is uh, his his passion for environmental causes, and yeah. really, uh, uh, you know, he was. Uh, huge in protecting the manatees right. you know uh they had uh, in the 1970s they were kind of being forgotten and uh, uh buffett took that on and you know f- uh, uh for over 40 years has uh, headed the, the save a manatee program right. here in mm-hmm. florida and, and uh, right has been very active in that so you know, he sold a lot of boats, which in some ways are the the, you know, the enemies of the manatee, but he also works uh, right. very, very hard to protect them. I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about the Margaritaville legacy of Jimmy Buffett. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, I, I, we, we unfortunately have to close here, uh, Corey, but I did want to also ask, at the risk of sounding like a suit-and-tie buzzkill, is it kosher for me to also ask, is there perhaps an underside to Margaritaville, um, particularly as it pertains to South Florida and the Keys? I mean, has it encouraged a certain attitude here that because we're all about beaches and flip-flops, we, we somehow don't have to take so seriously all the things those chumps up north worry about, like, say, good government and a high-wage economy? Well, yeah, you know, and I, I, I think uh, uh, you know, to, to some measure, you can you can see it. Uh, a lot of people have chosen to live here uh, because of Jimmy Buffett's music and the lifestyle that that you know he, he espoused, and and uh, you know it, it brought a lot of people down here. And I think people maybe will come here and not. Fully, you know, it, it doesn't always work out the way they right. think it will. Because right. <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, you look back historically, and I'm, I'm saying that before, uh, it, it's not Margaritaville, all right? It's always in the, in the keys here. Uh, it's been a lot of hard work to make uh, make things go, whether you were right. a wrecker or a sponger or a cigar maker. Yeah. Um, you had to work hard to be successful here, and it's right. not just, uh, you know, 
having a drink and laying in the hammock. That's not going to get you too far. Well, I'm, gl- I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you pointed it out, and that's a great point to end on. Dr. Corey Malcolm is the lead historian at the Florida Keys History Center in Key West. Corey, many thanks. All right. Thank you, Tim. Still to come, Cuba claims it's busted a trafficking ring that sent Cubans to fight for Russia. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Back in May, this program was one of the first to discuss reports coming out of Russia that Cubans residing there were signing up to fight with Vladimir Putin's army against Ukraine. They were reportedly doing so in exchange for Russian citizenship as a way to avoid having to return to the repression and economic catastrophe back in Cuba. But this week, the Cuban government announced it's dismantled a Russia-based human trafficking ring that it says was rounding up Cubans on the island to fight for Russia. Last night, it said it arrested 17 people. Havana also took a rare swipe at its ally, Putin, and distanced itself from his disastrous, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Critics, however, especially here in Miami, say it's hard to believe the Cuban government didn't know about Cubans being recruited to fight for Russia. They say the regime's claim that it busted a human smuggling ring is simply a smoke and mirrors attempt to cover up its earlier complicity in sending fighters to Russia. There's never been a shortage of opinion here when news like this pops up in Cuba. So what do you think? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Eric De La Fuente. He's a Cuban-American professor of international relations at Florida International University and an expert on Russia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe. Eric, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Good afternoon, uh, good afternoon, Tim, and thank you for the invitation. Eric, to start here, I want to see say that we reached out to the Cuban government to hear its explanation of all this. They did not respond. But I want to read two parts of the statement Cuban issued this week. First, quote, Cuba's enemies are promoting distorted information which seeks to tarnish the country's image and present Cuba as an accomplice to these human trafficking actions, which we firmly reject, end quote. And second, quote, Cuba is not part of the war in Ukraine, end quote. Okay, Eric, the Cuban government is obviously very sensitive to this accusation that what they did this week was simply crack down on something they were actually taking part in. But why do so many people believe that that is precisely what's going on here? Tim, uh, and, and as you reported, you were one of the few programs that back in May started reporting on some of the already reports that were coming out of there of Cubans being in the front, uh, whether fighting in Ukraine or training, tra- training in Belarus. The Cubans have come out to do that because, of course, they understand that if they are perceived by the U.S., by the EU, and favoring Russia or being complicit, being part of the actual conflict, uh, th- that could jeopardize these relations. But there is no doubt that to a, a certain level, the Cuban government first, at the very least, knew about this. At the second part, it played an instrumental part. Because we need to put this into context. Cuba has been one of the most staunchest allies of the Kremlin, of Russia, during this conflict. And in fact, Cuba's relations with Russia at this stage are at the strongest 
face since the fall of the Soviet Union. Look, Cuba has led a lot of the propaganda narrative of the Kremlin in Latin America and a big diplomatic push to get African countries, Latin American countries, where Cuba has long-standing ties to help in the diplomatic support and votes, etc. And let's not right. forget, there's a long-standing relations between Cuba and Russia dating back to the Soviet Union. So. Right. We, we should remind our listeners that, according, you know, based on what you, you're pointing out here, we should remind them that Cuba, like other governments in Latin America, both left-wing and right-wing, because let's not forget that former right. right-wing President Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil has also been very supportive of Putin, that they have refused to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Cuba and Russia are, very, are, of course, very close allies. What then do you think caused the Cuban government to suddenly start backing away from Vladimir Putin the way it did this week? I mean, did Cuba just decide its image was being hurt by all these reports of Cubans fighting for Russia in an invasion that most of the world has condemned? Oh, the Cubans have always been very good about managing their brand and their image, right? And, uh, and I think they understand that it has uh, important consequences you're in the midst of a U.S. election and, and, and the difference between the Biden administrations in terms of sanctions and a potential, let's say, a Trump, uh, the former Trump government uh, administration was big. So they, they want to make sure that they cannot, that, that a Biden administration cannot engage so much with Cuba if they see Cuba is seen as an internal part of this conflict with Ukraine, given that President Biden has taken a strong stance supporting Ukraine. The same thing with the EU deal with Havana. That's a number of the countries that are members of NATO, the European Union. Again, Ukraine is the centerpiece today in world news. And if Cuba uh, is an internal part of it, it would potentially damage a lot of economic advantages or other things. Right. But let's let's put into context one, one thing, Tim. In the last few months, you know, the high-level visits of, of Nikolai Patrushev, which is inner circle of, Krem, of, of, of Putin, not just uh, Secretary of the Russian Security Council to Havana, or Igor Selchin, uh, of course, uh, who's been a long time in our circle as well, and, and Cuba's prime minister going to going to Russia, spending 11 days. Cuba's defense minister meeting with with right. Russia's defense minister. So that 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 matters. Right, we've seen a lot of that, like, but but but. Eric, is there evidence, though, that the Cuban government was either taking part in or turning a blind eye to the actual recruitment of Cubans to fight for Russia? Is there actually evidence of that, though? Look, I, I you know, most of the Cubans that make it to the front go through the, the region of Riazan, which right. is sort of like I call it like the West Point. Right. And, 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 and I should mention you're very familiar with Riazan. I've right? been in Riazan four times. Uh, I have a lot of Russian friends and contacts for many years that have confirmed to me that they have seen Cuban recruits. Right, because okay. that's that's the city southwest of Moscow where these Cuban mercenary recruits were taken. Correct. That's correct. And but, but and by the way, there's also been a long-standing Cuban presence in Moscow and Russia for years of the Soviet Union. I mean, and a lot of them were part of the military, so it's not uncommon. Remember, a lot of the Cubans. Either they 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 know they know Russian. The young ones do not. But they, if you train in the in the military, in the, if you do the military service in Cuba, you do, you handle Russian arms as well. And but mm-hmm. and, and so you're familiar. But the other thing is there could be also networks, right? That the Cubans have sanctioned or profited of. Cubans tend to leave the island for whatever 
opportunity to see anywhere. And they're promised salaries over $2,000 a month. Right. Right. Yeah. You, and, and, and any Cuban will do anything to escape the economic deprivation on that island and, right now. And when your salary is $25 a month, $2,000 right. a month. And for the Russian, it makes sense, right? So Russia's been aggressively recruiting in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Right. But is, 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 is Ryasin, though, where this alleged human trafficking ring would have been based because that's where all of these Cuban mercenary recruits were ending up? Uh, you know, I don't know where it's based. It's definitely where you go through the trainings, right? So okay. anybody, uh, most people that go through the, through the trainings go through the region because that's where the academies are, and 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 so on. Not just the Cubans. Let's just be just to be and put it in perspective. This is not just for for Cubans that go there, right? Uh, but 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 that, 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 just to come back into the two main points. One, you know, at the very least. The Cuban government had extensive knowledge. The Cuban intelligence we would not it would not not know. Hundreds of Cubans are flying to Moscow, going to Rezan. That is not possible, and 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 it's very probable they were they were part of it. And the other thing is the narrative that Cuba is parting from Russia. That is so far from the truth. I mean, the Cubans have been very good at making these statements to kind of show, and 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 of course it's having right. results, right? Because. Uh, Few people like you are covering them in depth, right? But I mean, the Cubans are very closely tied to the Kremlin and, and the level of investments, the level of mm-hmm. military cooperation today, and that is not changing in any way. Right. I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Cuba's claim that it broke up a trafficking ring that was sending Cubans to fight for Russia. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Eric, as I mentioned at the outset, last night Cuba's interior ministry announced it had arrested 17 people in connection with this alleged operation that was trafficking Cuban mercenaries to go fight for Russia, but they gave no names or any other details. What do you think we're going to see in the coming days from the Cuban government uh, on this controversy? You know, when I when I saw originally the, the press release, right, the state, you know, Cuban state media about uh, uh, discovering this ring, I predicted right away there will be arrests and there will be long sentences and so on. This is like when, for example, the Kremlin arrests an oligarch, right, and arrests uh, him on corruption, right, even though they were doing the corruption with him, right? So even if you're part of it, I, I think you're going to see that, and I think they, they're, they're going to tout that as, as part of taking action in this in this thing. And, and I think some of the... You know, declarations, you know, especially to make sure, to assure, for example, the Biden administration, hey, look, I mean, we're trying to mend relations. We're not part of this conflict, uh, you know, uh, at, at this level. But, the, you know, there is there is other other evidence that points the other way. Cuba has played a role, for example, of the Ru- of the Russians' presence in Venezuela, right, in the Wagner Group presence in Venezuela, sure. yeah. in that connection. There are Russian troops in Nicaragua. The Cubans have were very big enablers of making that happen, and you know, which is a part. So it is not just about this announcement. I usually we usually tend to cover, you know, naturally so an event or an announcement. This is part of a bigger strategy or a bigger thing. Now, does Cuba want to tell this? No, of course not, because it doesn't and do that. But Cuba has a long history of making money, whether it's on doctors that they send away, or athletes, or or artists, etc. And they're, make, and they're probably making money off this as well. Now, part of this is also part of a bigger thing. If they want other things from Russia, Russia sent millions right. of dollars in oil to Cuba over the last, you know, definitely, let's just say, since the war started, uh, they used to do it before. And part of it is 
the, the Kremlin has a clear strategy. They don't want to mobilize more people inside Russia, right, because it's not popular. Right. So they mobilize in Central Asia, in Syria, in, in Cuba, in other parts, wherever they can get uh, uh, soldiers. And especially, we can see that if, if the Wagner Group, for example, which is integrated or, oh. or the boss into something else, mm-hmm. you need troops and not putting Russian citizens Oh, right. at least number of Russian citizens on the front. Right, is, is a good strategy. Eric, we only have a minute left, but I, one thing I want—I want to go sort of a historical thing here that's relevant. If it is true that the Cuban government is announcing this human trafficking ring as a way to cover up its own involvement in or its ignoring of Cubans going to fight in Russia, critics say we've seen this sort of thing from the the communist regime before, right? And I'm specifically talking about the Ochoa brothers and the drug trafficking scandal back in the 1980s. Uh, it was. Is that relevant to, to, to think about here? Uh, uh, absolutely. It's a, it's a good example. It's a good analogy. I mean, that uh, Oshua and the De La Guardia brothers, this was a part of the inner circle of the Of, of Fidel regime. Castro, right. Of, of yeah. Fidel Castro. And they were put in charge on corruption charges and drug trafficking. Right. To think that the Cuban government did not know was not part of that. Right. Naive, right? I'm gonna Eric Eric, unfortunately I'm gonna have to yeah. leave it there. I apologize, but thanks no, very much. Eric De La Fuente is an international relations professor at Florida International University. Eric again, thanks. Gracias. Thank you. Gracias. Finally on the roundup, we say hello this week to an emerging South Florida icon and goodbye to one that is passing away. I'm talking about Coco and the Clevelander. Last night, 19-year-old Coco Goff of Delray Beach won her semifinal match at the U.S. Open in New York. She'll play for that Grand Slam title tomorrow. Goff is the number six ranked player in the world. And that I mentioned she's only 19 years old? You wouldn't know it listening to her uncommonly mature reflections, like this one she shared with WLRN's Wilkin Brutus this year. I'm going to be starting my own foundation. Um, it's something I knew I was going to do um pretty much since I was like maybe 10 years old. Um, I just, you know, didn't know that tennis would happen so fast. So I didn't know I would be able to have the opportunity to do it so soon. And I'm grateful. Um, I'm very, um, I notice how much privilege I have in my situation. Uh, So I kind of want to use that to help other people. As I said, a South Florida icon in the making. Unfortunately, this week, we learned a South Beach icon is soon to leave us, the Clevelander Hotel. Its owners say the 85-year-old Art Deco gem on Ocean Drive will will be replaced by a 30-story building offering affordable housing. It'll hurt a lot to see the Clevelander go. Perhaps it'll hurt less knowing this will help ease Miami's dire housing affordability crisis, but we'll have to wait and see if that really happens. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.